Welcome everyone to episode 20 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. The first decade of the 20th century was a sparkling time in American construction. Nowhere was its spirit more intense than in downtown New York, an aging colonial seaport that was fast becoming a center of industrial capitalism. Here, among winding, narrow blocks, a Whitmanesque neighborhood of brick row houses and Protestant steeples was rapidly evolving into a concrete labyrinth of elegant white towers and steam-damp canyons. New York, with each new spire, signaled that America would no longer defer to Europe. Now, the future was being charted on this side of the Atlantic. From the AmericanConservative.com, a story by Theo Mackey Pollock a lost monument to industry and traditional urbanism. The Singer Building was an icon of this moment, rising 612 feet above Broadway at the corner of Liberty Street. Its sheer ambition was proved by a fleeting rain as the world's tallest building. Its artfulness was established by use of neoclassical and renaissance design elements at a novel scale, and its authenticity was grounded in local industry. Manhattan then was a maze of textiles. Its industrial fabric comprised cloth workshops and showrooms, its tenements housed armies of peace workers and seamstresses, and its labor unions were dominated by needle trades employees. For the city's skyline to be topped off by a maker of industrial sewing machines was a perfect fit. The Singer Building was an icon that came about quickly. In the fall of 1905, Frederick Gilbert Bourne, fourth president of the Singer Manufacturing Company, hired the Beaux Arts-trained architect Ernest Flagg to draw plans that would expand upon Singer's existing low-rise campus at the northwest corner of Broadway and Liberty Street, just east of where the World Trade Center complex stands today. The company was growing, and time was of the essence. With dizzying speed, blueprints were drawn, permits pulled, contracts signed, and a team assembled. Construction itself began in September 1906. A historic record of the entire project is now available in public domain in a carefully illustrated guidebook, A History of the Singer Building Construction, Its Progress from Foundation to Flagpole. Written by Otto Francis Simsch, the project's chief engineer, it was published contemporaneously with the building's opening, as was tradition in those days. Following a 20-month whirlwind, the Singer Building was completed in May 1908. From the engineer's narrative, we learn that the project encompassed a host of state-of-the-art ideas, from large-scale building techniques to bathroom faucets, from new methods of climate control to innovations in urban planning. Keeping with the patterns of traditional urbanism, the lower floors formed street walls that extended along the sidewalks of Broadway and Liberty Street. This preserved the enclosure of adjacent streets. By day, the tower allowed sunlight to reach the streets below. Clad with neoclassical details and finished in stone and red brick, it rose much higher than the 14-story base to a height of 612 feet. 
The rounded spire was topped off with a bright lantern that pierced the night sky, signaling the city's center like a tall candle to the surrounding harbor and hills. In a 1907 New York Times op-ed, singer's architect Ernest Flagg described how he had reconciled the continuation of old site planning patterns, the product of traditional low-rise European urbanism, with the challenges posed by the sudden advent of tall buildings. The high part of the building occupies only about one-sixth of the area of the plot on which it stands. It depends on its own land for its light. It casts a shadow, to be sure, but it seriously interferes with the light of no surrounding property. It presents a finished facade to all points of view. It adds to the picturesqueness of the skyline and the city, and its bulk rises from a line well back of the street facade. Flagg had alluded to an idea found in the English common law, known as the Doctrine of Ancient Lights, which holds that people can have a reasonable expectation of sunlight, and that when they do, their neighbors ought not to take it away. Flagg's proposal to codify a version of the Ancient Lights Doctrine, requiring some of the elements used in the Singer Building, would later influence New York City's original 1916 zoning resolution. One entered the Singer Building's main entrance from Broadway. Once inside, one found a fusion of the newest construction techniques and technical accessories with a rich embrace of classical and French Renaissance design elements in the Beaux Arts tradition. The Singer Company apparently had spared no expense. The main hall was a deep arcade of finely sculpted plaster, polished brass, and perfectly hued blocks of Italian marble. Heavily decorated, the space was reminiscent of traditionally sacred architecture in Europe, an early affirmation, to be repeated, of the almost religious place of commerce in the heyday of industrial America. When the Singer building opened, tourists could ride a modern Otis elevator, manned by a live operator, of course, to a sleek, glass-enclosed observation room at the 40th floor, where a panorama awaited encompassing the canyons of the Wall Street district, which flags so detested, along with the surrounding Blue Harbor, the Brooklyn and Manhattan bridges, the industries of the waterfront, and the green hills that ran off to rural America. In time before air travel, the prospect was a novelty. For pennies, tourists could get picture postcards with color lithographs showing the slim, bulbous tower rising above a cluster of smaller buildings, horse carts still visible at street level. At flea markets around the city, it's still common to find vendors selling these old postcards, canceled before World War I and inscribed with messages to loved ones back home, mostly across the United States. In the small space afforded, visitors pen notes about their adventures in the city, comment on the weather, or promise to tell longer stories upon their return home. Throughout the early and mid-20th century, the Singer Building served as the headquarters of its namesake company and housed other tenants like the Safe Deposit Company of New York and the Chatham and Phoenix National Bank. Its reign as the world's tallest building was short-lived as the Metropolitan Life Insurance Building, bringing echoes of Venice to the edge of Midtown, exceeded the singer's height within a year. Next came the Woolworth, a World War, the Jazz Age, a Great Depression. In the decades after World War II, fewer people came to see the view, and the singer faded in importance, until it eventually, almost, blended in to the scrum of dingy pre-war skyscrapers in downtown New York. Alas, no commercial architecture, no matter its beauty, was sacred enough to defer the hunger of American business. 
By the late 1960s, the streets and alleys of Lower Manhattan had grown dusty and dismal. The textiles business was retreating from New York, and it was widely understood that the city's center of gravity had long since migrated north to Midtown. Companies soon began to envision new headquarters in the suburbs or the Sun Belt. A mindset took hold that the old northeastern cities had to clear out their proverbial cobwebs if they hoped to survive. Everywhere, traditional urban neighborhoods were wrecked and bulldozed to make room for expressways, parking lots, brutalism, and other emblems of progress. And so, in this context, after just six decades, the Singer building would be demolished and replaced with little fanfare. When it was taken down in 1967, it was the tallest structure ever to be dismantled. Once envisioned as a durable monument to the American commercial ingenuity, and still a landmark of architecture and urban planning, the singer was unable to justify its continued existence amid the myopia of post-war America. The singer company had moved on. The marble and brass work of the main hall were sold off to collectors and salvage dealers. The tower was dismantled piece by piece, and on the same site, a larger office building, providing more floor space and newer amenities, but far fewer design flourishes, would rise. Presumably, the city's patriarchs were grateful that the new building's developer and main tenant, U.S. Steel, hadn't gone to Westchester or California. The singer's fate represented a darker but no less historic moment in the life cycle of American cities, a harsh counterpoint to the rich, artful optimism that had glinted through the fading years of the Gilded Age in the works of men like Ernest Flagg. The loss of the singer was but a single point in an unfolding narrative of urban destruction that also included, in New York alone, the demolition of the neoclassical Pennsylvania Station in 1963, the unceremonious wrecking of the Metropolitan Opera House in 1967, and the years-long decline of the Art Deco masterpieces along the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. Today, Americans have grown more cautious. When it comes to old buildings, we now have laws at our disposal that allow us to designate and preserve what we value. Yet the enactment of such laws, at such a late stage, illustrates how the singer's fate coincided with another milestone, an end to the idea that American industry might be trusted to build permanent things, without answering to the deeper values of law or community or tradition. Not only buildings, but individual lives, entire cities had been built around American industries that projected permanence at one point in the 20th century, only to be gone in a fleeting instant. The fate of Singer and everything else dashed what we now know to have been a naive hope, a belief that the most audacious commercial efforts to produce something lasting would not, one day, fall prey to the intrinsic transience of commerce. Car accidents happen every day around the world for a wide plethora of reasons. Most of them are caused by driver error, and some of them are, unfortunately, fatal. But when Mother Nature plays a role in a car accident, her actions can cause unparalleled devastation. From CarThrottle.com, a story by Kyle Ashton. No escape in sight. 1990 Tennessee I-75 pileup. Such was the case on U.S. Interstate 75 near Calhoun, a small Tennessee town located between the cities of Chattanooga and Knoxville. 
Thousands of vehicles used the highway daily, and this day was no exception. Little did anyone realize, but a combination of corporate nonfeasance, inadequate safety measures, and a rare weather phenomenon would, on a fateful day, cause one of the most catastrophic car accidents in American history. Interstate 75 is one of America's busiest highways. Stretching from Miami to the Canadian border north of Detroit, I-75 is a major commercial thoroughfare that serves as a pillar in the ground transportation network. With such large volumes of traffic, accidents are bound to happen. With that being said, if there's any road network in the world that's capable of safely moving millions of vehicles per day, it's the American interstate system. But with traffic moving at speeds upwards of 70 miles per hour, accidents on the interstate can be extremely dangerous, if not fatal. On the morning of December 11, 1990, things didn't seem particularly unusual for commuters driving on Tennessee's I-75 in the forests near the Hawassi River. However, at about 9.10 a.m., a thick fog suddenly appeared over the highway, reducing visibility to near zero to both northbound and southbound traffic. The first collision occurred when one semi rear-ended another that had slowed down in the dense fog. While the unhurt drivers got out to assess the damage to their rigs, a car rear-ended the back of the second semi, which was then rear-ended by another semi, starting a massive chain reaction crash. On the other side of the highway, a northbound automobile rear-ended another car that had also slowed down in the fog, causing a chain reaction to start in the northbound lanes of the interstate. By the time the fog, smoke, and fires cleared, 99 vehicles had become part of the rubble on I-75. 12 people were killed, and at least 42 more were injured. To this day, the Calhoun crash remains one of the deadliest car crashes in American history. The National Transportation Safety Board of America was called in to investigate how the disaster occurred. Their report would uncover some disturbing findings that led Tennessee residents to question whether or not I-75 was even safe to drive on. Fog was obviously the most major contributor to the tragic crash. The chain reaction pileups occurred because drivers couldn't even see what they had hit, let alone be able to react in time to avoid the calamity. In addition, drivers reacted differently in the adverse situation. Some slowed down, some pulled over and stopped altogether, while others continued full speed ahead. Fog is a common weather occurrence, especially in this part of Tennessee, but big accidents like this are much rarer. In addition, there was something unusual about the fog on that day. It was extremely thick and rolled in almost instantly. The fog caught drivers off guard, which is unusual in most fog-related incidents. So why was this fog so severe? The answer to that question was a weather phenomenon known as a temperature inversion. Normally, the air that's closest to the ground is warmer than the air higher up in the atmosphere. A temperature inversion occurs when a warm air mass passes over the top of the ground and disrupts the normal convection cycles in the atmosphere. As a result, the air temperature below the warm air mass is actually colder at the lower level. This results in water vapor, smoke, and other pollutants getting trapped under the warm air mass causing a very thick fog to settle in the low-lying areas. On the morning of December 11, 1990, the conditions at the accident scene were perfect for an inversion to occur. Between Knoxville and Chattanooga, I-75 runs through an area known as the Cumberland Plateau. In the basin of the plateau where the highway is located, cool air tends to get trapped if a warm front passes directly over the highlands. 
Meteorologists determined that this is exactly what happened in the days leading up to the crash. Not only did this itself cause fog to form, but it also trapped the vapors coming from both vehicle traffic and the evaporation from the Hawassi River and its surrounding marshes. Combined, these two natural phenomena played a major role in the Calhoun accident. While there was never any doubt that fog is a naturally occurring problem on that particular stretch of I-75, scientists were skeptical that the amount of natural evaporation in the area could cause such a dense fog that was reported on the day of the accident. People began to suspect that the paper plant, owned by Bowwater, one of the largest newsprint manufacturers in the world at the time, had contributed to the accident. Large-scale paper plants, such as the Bowwater plant in Tennessee, put out huge amounts of pollutants as part of the paper-making process. Not surprisingly, the massive clouds that billow out of the smokestack often result in fog formation in areas near the plant. In addition, paper plants use a lot of water, which then has to be discharged somewhere. Bowwater dealt with their wastewater by building a series of wastewater containment ponds around their Tennessee plant. One of these ponds, Pond Number 4, was located directly beside I-75. Due to its large size and contamination with particulate materials, it was speculated that evaporation from Pond Number 4 also played a major role in the formation of fog on the day of the crash. Engineers were able to calculate the evaporation rates from the bodies of water in the area, including Bowwater's containment ponds. They were also able to determine the amount of vapor emissions coming from the plant around the time of the accident. Their conclusion, while a certain amount of naturally forming fog occurs in the area, the most significant contributions to the fog on that day came from Bowwater's operations. Although the devastating Calhoun crash was somewhat of an anomaly, fog had been a significant issue along that stretch of I-75 since the day it opened. Several smaller chain reaction accidents had occurred prior to the 1990 crash, so it was well known that the highway could be dangerous. The state of Tennessee thought they had solved the problem by putting up warning signs and flashing lights that alerted drivers to potential fog hazards. However, on the day of the crash, those signs weren't working properly, leaving drivers with no idea of the danger ahead. When the NTSB released their report into the accident in 1992, it was clear that the catastrophe was almost inevitable. A perfect storm of adverse weather, industrial activity, and insufficient safety warnings left those involved in the December 11, 1990 crash with little chance of avoiding catastrophe. Bowwater denied any responsibility for the accident, claiming that the fog on that day was natural and the state of Tennessee should have taken more safety precautions. However, it was discovered that Bowwater was in possession of a report made decades earlier that implicated Bowwater activity in the formation of unusually dense fog in the region. With lawsuits pending, Bowwater settled out of court with the families of the victims and the state of Tennessee. They later shut down their Tennessee operations and became defunct in 1977. The state of Tennessee also settled with the families and took steps to ensure a similar tragedy would never happen again. A computerized fog detection system was installed to alert drivers of adverse road conditions. Using massive, programmable overhead signs, the system alerts drivers of the conditions ahead and can reduce the highway speed limit accordingly. Freeway interchanges feature massive swing-arm-type gates which close the freeway on-ramps to traffic in the event of extreme fog. Advances in vehicle technology have helped too. Despite the fact that many changes have been made, 
Many area residents still believe, however, that I-75 is still unsafe. They know that despite our advances in technology and understanding, that Mother Nature is still a savage beast that will always threaten to strike the interstate once again. This story is from TheBaffler.com and is written by Paul Legault. It is entitled, Dazzle Speaks with the Dead. (laughs) This is a weird one even for me. Dazzle was neither a mystical nor a metaphysical sort of dog. He didn't believe in karma, redemption, the transcendental ego, or the imminence of platonic forms. For Dazzle, the world was a meaningless and immutable mess and the byproduct of entirely material insufficiencies. Not enough bones to go around, say, or people with too many weapons living next door to people without any. So it came as something of a surprise when Dazzle developed, late in life, a gift for speaking with the dead. He had never sought out such a gift, but once it came his way, he lived with it the best that he could. I want to tell her that I'm sorry I didn't clean the bowl more often, or show her enough attention, especially when I was working. Mr. Lapidus confessed to Dazzle in the sandalwood-scented comfort room of Madame Velma's Spiritual Contact Center, the longest-functioning spiritual arts shop on the Central Coast. I meant to clean it more often, but I never did, and I wish I'd been more affectionate. I don't know how affectionate I could have been with a goldfish, but I should have at least made more of an effort. I'm just not the sort of person who develops healthy emotional connections with other creatures, probably because I didn't know my father when I was little. Other little boys had fathers to play with, but I never did. Dazzle was accustomed to the weeping, the frantic hand-wringing, and the physical convulsions that manifested human remorse. But if he lived to be a thousand, he would never grow accustomed to the preposterous get-up that Madame Velma insisted he wear each morning while serving customers. The multicolored scarves layering his forehead like the turban of some furry Sikh or silver-painted bracelets chiming loosely from his neck and ankles, making him feel like a cheap whore at a carnival. Sitting on a rickety wooden stool behind an even rickettier card table, Dazzle took a deep breath, closed his eyes, and placed his calloused paws against the sides of his glowing Taiwanese-manufactured crystal ball. Shh, Dazzle breathed softly. Somebody's trying to speak. Mr. Lapidus, wringing his large, pale, sweaty hands, hunched closer. Yes, I'm listening, Dazzle whispered. Speak louder, please. Your name's Fishface, and you're lonely. Your name's Fishface, and you're trying to find a path into the next world. Mr. Lapidus blew his nose into a moppy clump of Kleenex, his eyes round and wide. Have you found my beloved Fishface, he asked. How did you know her name? What's she trying to say? Dazzle cautioned Mr. Lapidus with his half-lidded eyes. Life was hard, Dazzle confirmed. The spectral presence appeared in Dazzle's ambient perception like a blip on a sonar screen, a spiny blur of incoherency and loss. It was cold and round and came up hard from every direction. It yielded nothing but the minimal reflections of yourself. Mr. Lapidus stopped crying and sat up straight. He could feel the presence, too. Or maybe he could just feel Dazzle feeling it. And now all you're looking for is peace, Dazzle continued, trying not to look directly at Mr. Lapidus. You aren't interested in what this lonely man wants from you, 
You just want to get as far away from his big, emotionally obsessed moon face as you can get. Since appointing Dazzle her apprentice medium in training, Madame Velma had departed to Club Med with a Dominican leaf blower named Jaime Sanchez, but not before signing over the DBAs to her financial manager and opening an online account at the downtown Albertsons, where Dazzle could purchase home-delivered dog food, fresh fruit and vegetables, and an occasional mixed case of Cote de Rhone or Bujolai Novo, which proved especially useful in helping Dazzle unwind after a long day communing with the cosmos. They don't care one whit about their recently departed, Madame Velma assured him during their weekly phone conference, her voice suffused with the imminent echoey rush of waves on what Dazzle envisioned as a white, shellless beach framed by the blue sky and bluer water. They just can't stand being disobeyed. People develop an unnatural attachment to pets, mainly on account of pets got no say in the matter. Go there, sit here, eat this, sleep on the floor, get in the cage, stop growling, People get what they want from the human-beast dynamic, and that's extremely satisfying to the sorts of fragile egos that need pets. But when a pet dies, it issues the only independent statement it ever makes, as in, Good riddance, pal. Take your catnip toys and doggy treats and shove them straight up your you-know-what. It's like primal disobedience at the cellular level. For pet lovers, it sends their self-images into a state of shock. Suddenly, their pets have become as indifferent to their happiness as everybody else. Since developing an evening regimen of lapping moderately priced wine from a plastic dog bowl, Dazzle had grown about as mellow as he was likely to get. I'm cool on the whole over-the-top emotional crisis deal, he said, kicking back on Madame Velma's corrugated blue sofa amongst the burbling lava lamps and steadily glimmering hummels. I'm even cool with the neediness, the endless litany of personal regret, and the desperate post-midnight pleading for emotional guidance when, geez, you know me, Velma, I don't care what happens to human beings, I really don't, but the part that drives me most crazy is that here I sit, day after day, listening to one homo sape after another, begging me to contact their departed loved ones, and then, when I do make contact, they're not interested in what their loved ones are trying to say. They just carry on whining about what they're feeling and their pain as if the entire spiritual universe is all about them. Unlike Dazzle, who tended to worry too hard about things, Madame Velma was more the carpe diem type personality, which was probably why her voice faded away into the distant rush of waves whenever Dazzle's voice grew most distraught. Te amo mamacita, a swarthy sounding Latin voice whispered in the staticky background, as rhythmic and self-sustaining as the tides of St. Tropez. Te amo all the time. But if Dazzle waited long enough, Velma either hung up the phone or re-emerged from what sounded like a long kiss. You've got a gift, Daz, Madame Velma would conclude, whether you like it or not. Me, I was a total charlatan, with all those spooky hidden tape machines and wobbly floorboards hooked to remote controls and so forth. But I know a good soul when I meet one, and... One of those good souls happens to be yours. So, do what your gift tells you, honey, and always remember the most important part of spiritual arts services. We take cash, money orders, and American Express, but never Visa. Those Visa pricks keep hitting us with surcharges, and if there's one thing that pisses off Madame Velma, it's lining pockets that aren't hers. Sometimes, the waiting room at Madame Velma's grew so crowded with tearful comfort seekers clutching hand-worn animal toys and framed photographs that 
Dazzle resorted to a crude fire hydrant red take-a-number dispenser at the door. Okay, number 766. Let's cut to the chase. Your cat got crushed by a semi, and he's been searching purgatory for months, but can't find his catnip bell anywhere. My advice, as per usual, is burn it. Help Sheba understand there's nothing worth coming back for, and she'll stop waking you in the night with her infernal mewling and knocking over the rubbish bins. Oh, and by the way, she does sometimes miss you a tiny bit. She recalls you as the bringer of meat and the warmth that lingers in the cushions, which is pretty good individuation for a cat. Those characters usually never think about anybody but themselves. Next. Radio, so we're up to 767, and I can't help you if you don't listen, so listen good. Polly didn't want a cracker. She just wanted you to stop clipping her wings long enough so she could fly out that window as far as she could get. She didn't like your smell, she didn't like your taste in music, and she definitely didn't like your girlfriend, who, by the way, bludgeoned poor Polly to death with a meat tenderizer and carefully positioned the corpse in front of that carefully blood-smeared window so you'd think what she wanted you to think. My advice is to dump the broad, let Polly carry on her quest for non-being, and get on with your life while you still got one. Next. Which brings us to number 768. Jeez, what time is it anyway? You got exactly two minutes and here goes. You had a hamster and it died. Big fucking wow. That's what hamsters do, pal. Get used to it. Believe me, kiddo appreciated the little world you built for her with mazes and sky towers and tubal corridors and so forth. But now she's roaming the stratosphere with all the other dead hamsters and it's time to let go. So please, fill that plastic bottle up for me with this budget price Cuernavaca and hook the pipette to my collar. There's a little clasp right there next to my license. Oh, and slip the nachos into my shoulder flap. That's the ticket. I'm off to the beach where I'm planning to get really, really drunk. And please turn off all the lights when you leave. If Madame Velma ever catches sight of our latest utility bill, she'll kick my sorry ass into the great beyond her damn self. What Dazzle most appreciated about the beach was the way it scrubbed the air clean of imperfections. Concepts like identity, meaning, specificity, and permanence didn't mean much out here where everything that ever was continually being eroded into everything that wasn't and back again. Driftwood and condoms, broken seashells and pop bottles, seagull poop and cigarette butts, jetsam and flotsam, forth and so forth. The sensory freedom was exhilarating, Dazzle thought, gazing up at the heavy moon and fractal stars. Every smell and sound and texture seemed to be wrapped up in everything else, like some Dionysian skits bath of pure, undifferentiated sensation. It's the only place where I can hear myself think anymore, Dazzle confessed to his friend Harry Canfield, a publicly disgraced family investment advisor who had recently begun sleeping under the pier in a moldy, goose-down mummy bag, and escaped all that endless wittering of dead pets yearning for the crappy plastic doodads they left behind like rubber chew toys, or hamster wheels, or geez, they're filthy litter boxes. If that isn't a metaphor for enslavement by material crap, I don't know what is. It makes me wonder, Harry, what's it going to be for me when I'm dead and almost gone, diminishing in the stellar radiance like some dissipating radio signal from what's my line? What will I be endlessly desiring back on this increasingly perilous and desperate ball of dirt and stupidity and grief? My comfy sofa cushions? My sweet spot in the Big Sur cave next to Edwina? Or will it be my emerging fondness for alcohol, which is the only thing that makes me relax anymore? 
Is that all I've got to look forward to when I cash in my chips? Because if that's what living is all about, Harry, then maybe we should just call an end to the whole shabby shebang right now. Harry was crouched over a thinly blazing can of Sterno with a pair of hot dogs skewered on a twisted coat hanger. It was one of Harry's endearing qualities, Dazzle had come to realize, his ability to appreciate life's simplest pleasures. As I get older, you know what I think about more and more? That old Toyota Corolla my parents gave me when I graduated college, Harry reflected softly. Palomino white with white sidewall tires. It never broke down once in five years. And an eight-track tape deck back before eight-track tape decks were funny. Sometimes I miss that damn car more than my kids, my house, my wife, or even, and I hope you pardon the expression, or even my stupid dog. It was certainly more dependable than the rest of them put together. Dazzle usually woke to the pre-dawn clamor of beeping garbage trucks along the boardwalk and the exhortations of Mad Alice walking her shaggy, muddish dogs along the thinning, bright shoreline in her baggy gray Mexican wool sweater and leather sandals. Six a.m., boys, Madam Alice shouted, striking each of them three metronomic beats on the butt with her varnished redwood walking stick. The shore patrol hit these sands at 6.30 and you need to kick sand over this campfire and move your legs long enough so you don't qualify as loiterers. With dawn came more than recollection, Dazzle thought. As the pinkish morning glow diminished into the flat blue horizon, the voices of departed entities regained focus and resolution in little bursts of static, like Russian or Chinese broadcasts hitting the dashboard radio in the post-midnight resonance. I want my squeaky ball under the sofa in the den, whispered an expired Pomeranian named Dodo somewhere off Grover Beach, or those breadcrumbs look delicious emanating from a forlorn spectral pigeon fluttering eternally over the 101 overpass in Galetta. Departed spirits popped and sparked in the air around Dazzle's brain like tiny fireworks or little blizzards of sentience. Give me, bring me, get me, need, need, need. I want, 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 must, 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 must. Help me, help me, find me, help me. After I lost Frankie Avalon III, Alice confessed later, sharing charity donuts and coffee on the greatest beachfront beach in the history of civilization, or so Dazzle figured, I thought my life was over. I went to bed thinking about that stupid dog and woke up thinking about him. For months, I'd jump out of bed and head straight to the kitchen and start fixing his breakfast before I stopped and thought, Hey, what the hell am I doing? Frankie's dead as a doornail. He got a tumor on his liver and the chemotherapy never took. He was dead for months and wouldn't go away, and something in me wouldn't let him go away. It was like we were bound together in some diminishing spiral of being and nothingness all at once. The carpets were still brown with his damn dog hairs. There were still these round, ovular stains where he'd throw up on the corduroy sofa after eating crap off the beach. And then the voice of that dog would start buzzing around in my head. Go for walkies, he kept saying. Give me a treat and go for walkies. It was like I could hear his voice bouncing around the house in the places he used to be. Near the front door, in the kitchen near his doggy bowl, out back near the gate. Go for walkies. Beach, beach, beach. Run on sand. Eat crap off beach. It was like that crazy dog had a one-track mind, and that one-track mind was circulating endlessly through my house like those automatic floor sweepers. You know the kind I mean? They look like little silver robo-dogs, but they do the vacuuming. The kind that were invented by the Japanese. 
After breakfast, Alice drove Dazzle back to SLO in her 86 Ford Ranger S. Otherwise, he might miss his first appointments at Madame Velma's, which started heating up around 9 or 9.30. You can't spend your life living for the dead, hun, she told Dazzle one morning. Her face was as wrinkled as the underlay of a cardboard box. You may not have noticed, but you aren't looking so good since you started drinking and working weekends. Maybe it's time to hang up your crystal ball and get your butt back to planet Earth. At Madame Velma's, they were already in the waiting room, holding up their yellow number tags like overeager suitors at a flash date. There was Mr. Lapidus, of course, with his mineral-streaked goldfish bowl, and Mrs. Judson with her rhinestone-studded dog collar or the Burley brothers carrying the rusty cage of their departed ferret, Sparky, between them like pallbearers at a children's zoo, or Miss Munoz, weeping into the faded flannel scarf of her dead burrow, Maximilian Buonaparte IV. Some days, entering Madame Velma's anteroom felt like entering a flea market in hell. Everybody had something to sell, but nobody in their right mind wanted to buy it. Mr. Dazzle, are you in contact with Fishface? You've got that far away look in your eyes, like you're looking at me and you're not looking at me. It's the sort of look I've been getting all my life. It's me, Mr. Lapidus. Look, I'm first in line and I've been waiting since 4 a.m. I just remembered something important to tell Fishface. It's about the noise from my television, all those gunshots and torture sounds from CSI and so forth. I can't stop thinking about how terrified she must have been with all that high-volume violence echoing around her fishbowl. It kept me up all last night. So much to be scared about and so little time to understand. Isn't that what life's really about, Mr. Dazzle? And then, just when we start to understand a tiny bit of it, we're suddenly dragged off to some other meaningless form of non-existence altogether. Then, one night when he least expected it, Dazzle was visited by a spirit from his own half-forgotten life, and not, as usual, a spirit from the half-forgotten life of others. Dazzle, honey, can you hear me? It's Mom. It's very dark out here, and I'm having trouble finding you and your sisters. I can smell you, but I can't see you. Is that our garbage bin over there? It's even darker and scarier looking than usual. Can you help me find my way? This is a lot more complicated than it should be. After all, I'm just looking for our silly old garbage bin. I'm just looking for my babies. Now, Dazzle was not a sentimental sort of creature. In fact, he considered sentiment to be one of those bougie illusions that bound animals up in fantasies of individual plentitude and fulfillment. But when he heard that unmistakable voice and smelled that unmistakable smell, a surge of emotion rose from his chest as swift and disorienting as one of the legendary riptides off the Pacific coast. When first it takes your ankle, it feels almost flirtatious. But then you know it. It wraps you up in stronger arms than yours and drags you into dimensions you can't control. Mom, Dazzle said. It was one of those words he never expected to use again, and somehow, in the simple act of using it, he felt something round and pliable burst inside him, and wetness spilling out of his face and heart like an overflowing of the world he had always secretly and profoundly loved. Mom, the tears were like a physical convulsion. They shook Dazzle to his core and then shook him again. Like many precocious children, Dazzle suffered from conflicted memories of his mother, who had raised him the best she could behind a Ralph's Market in Encino and went off on a wonder, got hit by a bus, and unknowingly relegated him to the dubious patronage of the Los Angeles SPCA. 
In his earliest and most intensely remembered days and nights of existence, she had been pure surfeit and totality, dispensing milk and love and indulgence and marveling at every aspect and expression of him. You're so handsome, she told him. You're so smart. You're so much better than your father. You're my baby. You're my lover. You're my honey. You're my all, all, all. I'll hold you close forever, baby. Your mommy loves you more than anything. And then you went away, Dazzle thought, the tears pouring out of him like water from a faucet. You loved me and promised me, and then you went away. It was so selfish to hate her for her mortality, he thought, but it was the only thing he could hate her for, and it was the only way he could get her back. It took him several minutes to catch his breath. He sat up on the living room couch. He gazed into the empty air. I don't know how to tell you this, Mom, but you're dead. You don't exist. You're like this reflection that keeps reflecting after the mirror is broken, or this echo of a voice that's gone away but keeps echoing. You don't have any more substance than that, Mom, and you'll never have any more substance than that ever again. There were other voices out there, Dazzle realized. Ducks, walruses, ostriches, ocelots, kangaroos, pandas, even human beings. A discordant, continually accumulating cacophony of intentions and desires and memories and misfortunes. It was like stumbling into a huge subterranean vault filled with the newspapers of a dead civilization, bristling with an infinity of DOW forecasts, midnight TV schedules, astrological horoscopes, crossword puzzles, and op-ed features about elections, weather paradigms, international treaties, and scientific discoveries that no longer mattered because everybody who once pretended to care about him was dead. And in the midst of all that black-and-white hieroglyphic unreadability, a small spark of color flashed. It called out to Dazzle's peculiar and unwanted extra sensitivity. It had a name. You have seven sisters, Mom said, but I love you best. You're my big boy. We keep each other warm behind the garbage bin, Dazzle. Please don't send me away. It didn't seem fair, Dazzle thought, all this unwanted emotion spilling out of him, tracking his gray chest hair with tiny, sand-speckled rivulets. How could he send her away? Because he couldn't send her away until he knew how much he wanted her back. He wanted her back, and then he could send her away. It's never easy to tell who's holding on to whom, or why we can't let go. Dazzle explained a few nights later to his assembled soon-to-be former clients at a pre-announced going-out-of-business spiritualist confab on the post-midnight Avila Shore. Even when we know better, we try to hold on to what we can't keep. That's because the most horrible realization any self-reflective creature can suffer is that this whole crazy universe doesn't make sense, even on a good day. It doesn't make sense that what we love can't last, and that, in the long run, we can't ourselves last for those we love. What sort of fucking asshole universe is that? It's a fucking asshole universe. That's what it is, and I'm sick of it. Gathered together on the darkling beach, Dazzle's clients represented every conceivable shape, size, and ethnicity, brightly adorned in dashikis and fezes and Native American headdresses and mandala earrings and peacock-emblazoned Indian saris. And, like most New Agers of the late baby boom generation, they seemed mutually ill-fitted to their exterior manifestations. It's like they're dressing to be somebody they've never met, Dazzle often thought. Someone infinitely wise with all the answers. Someone who will live forever. What does that even mean? 
Mr. Lapidus whined miserably, clutching his mildewy ceramic castle as if it were the only safety bar on a vertiginously careening roller coaster. What do you mean the universe doesn't make sense? What sort of comfort is that? And of course we can hold on to the ones we love. You help us do it every day. Why are you trying to confuse us just when we're starting to find a little peace in this terrible world where everybody's always dying, even me? Mr. Lapidus's big, red, tear-streaked face was like a worm on a picnic table. Everybody had to look at it, and as soon as they looked at it, they looked away. Mrs. Beasley with her squeaky rubber dinosaur, Mrs. Chaw with a blue corrugated Kong, Freddie Watson with a mouse-shaped catnip toy, Louisa Merchant with a heavily scored cuddlebone. Too often, Dazzle thought, our lives record the passage from one piece of meaningless crap to another, and there's no end to the things we can't throw away. What I'm trying to tell you, Mr. Lapidus, and all you fine, bereaved people, is that I've been going on about this whole sixth sense nonsense the wrong way. I tried to give everybody what they asked for, contact with the lost friends who left them. I tried to help you adjust to their departures with this one-step-at-a-time approach, but as I'm finally learning, the one-step-at-a-time approach never works. If you want to actually change your life, it's got to be cold turkey. As a pup, Dazzle had been briefly enamored of 60s rock music, especially the Woodstock types such as Carlos Santana and Stephen Stills. It had all seemed so simple back then. Just take off your clothes, roll around in the dewy grass, smoke a little doobage, and love whoever you were with. For decades, public media had dismissed those brief, muddy years as a sort of bizarre, Manson-like orgy of crime, freaky sunglasses, and a pathological disregard for the achievements of supply-side economics. But Dazzle remembered them fondly, as a fragrant period of benign inattention. Love the one you're with, Dazzle thought now. Ignore all the bullshit and politicians and stupidity and guns and bombs. If you can't be with the one you love, baby, then just love the one you're with. We've all got our crosses to bear, Dazzle told his spiritually distraught customers. We've all got things we want back and voices we don't want to lose, and a faith in ourselves that we'll never have again, which is why I want us to do this together. It's time for everybody to let go, especially me. It's time to take what was never ours and set it free. So I want you all to grab hold of whatever it is you want back and feel what it feels like one more time. That paltry little object or that memory or that still resonant voice in your head. Then I want you to turn to whoever's standing next to you and do the only thing left to do for any sane, rational individual in a totally insane, irrational universe. Dazzle paused for healthy, dramatic effect. Swap, he said. It was so obvious, he thought. I don't know why I didn't think of it before. So what happened then? Mad Alice asked, turning over three pasty-colored tofu patties on a tinily blazing Walgreens brand hibachi with a long metal fork. She had recently done something dreadlocky to her whitish-gray hair that made her look like an inverted mop. Lying on his favorite green khaki blanket, Dazzle gazed at the glowing coals with a pleasant sense of inanition. When things get hot enough, all things turn into something else, he thought even something as unpalatable-looking as a tofu patty. What else could they do? Dazzle shrugged. It's hard to ignore somebody who speaks with this voice of authority I've developed. It's a voice I plan to jettison the first chance I get. Harry poured three paper cups full of fruit smoothies from a large glass pitcher, a concoction of icily whipped bananas, mangoes, granola, kiwi, and lemon zest that Mad Alice had dubbed the Banana Wow. 
Ever since releasing his clients three days ago, Dazzle had submitted to Alice's most stringent self-purging program. Nothing but fresh fruit, vegetables, and every night before bed, a large glass of pure, unfiltered lemon juice. So, Dazzle continued, Mrs. Chin dutifully swapped her costume jewelry and crusted kitty collar for Mr. Jorgensen's hamster car, and Phil Hatland swapped his budgie bell for Harriet's well-chewed sweat sock. And rubber balls got swapped with squeaky toys, and doggy treats got swapped with fish flakes, and one sense of loss got swapped with another sense of loss, and one memory got swapped with another memory, and before you knew it, everybody was talking and chattering about these terribly insignificant items and dead beasts and crying and hugging and feeling some reasonable measure of catharsis in the arms of one another. It was like this really embarrassing group hug, and to be totally frank, I indulged in some of the good vibes myself. I mean, there we were, sharing in this really awkward sense of togetherness and well-being, and suddenly I look up from this great scratch I'm receiving between the ears from a hand I can't recognize to find the one lonely soldier on the shore looking like a wallflower at the orgy. Poor, rubbery, red-faced Mr. Lapidus, clutching that stupid ceramic castle and looking like he's about to burst. And nobody wants to go near him, right, since he's a walking exemplification of everything we've left behind. And that sense of solitary loss we feel cringing alone in the dark. And I don't know what happened, but I just stared Mr. Solitary Loss straight in the eye, walked up to him, and took that silly ceramic castle from his white clenched fingers with my teeth. He wanted to let it go. He wanted to give it to me, but his fingers took some convincing. And when I finally flung that stupid ceramic castle into the campfire where it belonged, neither of us turned to watch it burn. Instead, I stood as tall as I could on these old gray hind legs and gave Mr. Lapidus the last thing Mom gave me before we parted material company forever. And Mr. Lapidus thanked me in just the way I expected. Ew, he said, wiping his mouth as if he had just tasted mandrel poop. I got licked on the mouth by a dog. Frankly, it was a lot less thanks than I deserved. And at the same time, considering the fundamental ungenerosity of human beings, it was all the thanks I could ever expect. Another short intermission here to again say thank you to everyone who's posted a review of the show, said nice things on Twitter, and especially donated to the show. Um, there's been another big spike in listeners lately, and really, podcast analytics are not good enough to tell me where they came from, but I'm awful glad to have you all, so thanks a lot to you. If you feel so inclined to donate or leave a review, see all the contact information for the show all in one place, all of that stuff is on the website, www.curse.land. Thanks again, everybody. Now on with the show. My interest in cryptozoology began the day I witnessed a creature that was beyond my belief, or what I thought, the boundaries of reality. The incident was reported to a BFRO investigator several years ago, in hope that they may be able to get further information from local authorities. Unfortunately, this investigator was unable to help. From the website, phantomsandmonsters.com, Sykesville Monster Encounter. This story is by Lon Strickler, and it's purportedly true. 
The date of the encounter was May 9th, 1981, about 10 a.m., and I was fly fishing for red-eye and smallmouth bass on the south branch of the Patapsco River, approximately one mile downstream from Route 32 near Sykesville, Maryland. The weather was sunny and slightly breezy, and the air temperature was in the low 60s. This section of river flattens out into riffles and then empties into a larger pool, an area I had fished several times previously. I was on the south bank near the riffles when I noticed a stray mixed-breed dog sniffing around the weeds and thickets on the north bank. The dog was about 50 yards from me and was weaving in and out of the brush. I wasn't worried about the dog bothering me, so I just put it out of my mind and concentrated on fishing. After a few minutes or so, I heard the dog barking and growling. I figured that he stirred up a deer, but when I looked at the direction of the ruckus, I noticed a dark, hairy creature bobbing up and down in the thickets. I stopped fishing and moved closer to the riffles to get a better look and noticed that the dog stopped barking. Suddenly, I heard a loud yelp from the dog and the creature stood up. The best I could tell is that this thing was about seven to eight feet tall and had dark, matted hair. I could only see the body from the chest up because the rest of the body was obscured by weeds and thickets. I stood completely still and could hear a series of tick sounds while observing this creature walking slowly through the thickets toward the woods. I started to follow it and in the meantime I noticed a strong musky scent that reminded me of fox urine. I had waders on so I could only move so fast in an attempt to get a better look at this creature. It simply moved too fast for me. I decided to go back to my car, drive into Sykesville, and make an immediate report to the authorities. On my way back to the vehicle, I noticed the dog, and it had noticeable blood around the neck and hind area, but seemed to be able to get around. I figured I better stay away from the dog regardless. I drove to the nearest telephone, which was located outside a bar. The local police told me to go back to the area, and they'd meet me there. So I got back into the car. I seriously thought about going into the bar for a minute first, but better judgment made me change my mind and started to drive back to the river. I was amazed that a Maryland State Police cruiser was already there. The state police officer told me to get back in my car and leave immediately because they didn't know how dangerous the situation was. I tried to explain to him that I made the initial report, but he refused to let me talk and again told me to leave. I went back to the area about one hour later, and the place was crawling with people and many state and other official vehicles. One man standing near the road did tell me that someone found some hair samples, but refused to say anything else. For many years, I tried to gather information from local authorities in regards to this incident, but I've always been told that no information is available, or we have no report of an incident. Since that time, I've decided that I would do my own investigations and find information on my own. I later received this comment to this incident, unedited. This share brings up some old memories. I always expected that sooner or later it would get out. I'm glad someone else saw it and kicked over the can. I'll add beans. I was one of the responders on that call. Right after we'd closed down the road, a government response team arrived. Those guys weren't fooling around. Their big dogs and bigger guns made that evident. It wasn't long before we were locked out, ordered into our cruisers and away from the area. The into our cruisers part was the weirdest. We were outmanned, outgunned, and outranked by the feds who had taken over. Soon after that, within an hour at most, several choppers were overhead, as in three. 
It was a manhunt on a larger scale than we could have mustered so quickly, and that's saying a lot. I've never really been positive what happened. None of our guys had actually seen it, though I imagine it was caught or killed. They said there were hair samples and footprint photos and casts taken. We were debriefed and basically instructed not to speak of this matter. With that, I'll close and say no more except that it did happen, as described on here. At the time, I called the being I witnessed a Bigfoot because, frankly, that was the only way I could have described it. It wasn't human. It wasn't an ape. For over 30 years, my encounter with this being had left a strange hole in my understanding of nature and reality. Over the years, I've tried to gather more information on my sighting as well as other sightings in the general area. Since my sighting in 1981, there have been two more BFRO Class A reports along the Patapsco River Valley and another four general reports and sightings in the same area from 1972 to 1979. I interviewed and got to know several of the witnesses of the 1972-73 Sykesville Monster Flap after my personal encounter in 1981. Many of these witnesses have since passed away. There were other unreported incidents in the general Sykesville and Gaither, Maryland areas. I personally took statements to eight more sightings or encounters between 1972 and 1979, including a home invasion on Norris Avenue and a utility shed break-in on Oklahoma Avenue. Both were located in Sykesville. There were also several chicken pens broke into up and down the south branch of the Patapsco River in Gaither, Maryland, Sykesville, Maryland, Woodstock, Maryland, Daniels, Maryland, and Ellicott City, Maryland. Most of the sightings have been within the Patapsco State Park, which has a history of unusual activity, UFO, paranormal, and cryptid, throughout the park. I still live within 15 miles of all the locations. I decided to come to grips with my encounter and had a sketch or image of the being's face created. I knew that if the image was similar to what I actually witnessed, there would be controversy and doubters, but I couldn't let that bother me. After making a few inquiries, I was directed to a retired police forensics artist who was a private investigator in Florida. I forwarded all the facial descriptions that I had gathered from the witnesses' sightings and subsequent interviews. I received the image with a note from the artist that read, Are you sure this is what you witnessed? It looks like a rendering of early man except for a few features. I called him and assured him that this is what I witnessed. This is what we all witnessed. This was the Sykesville monster. A few years after my Bigfoot encounter, I happened upon an older gentleman named Phil, who was fishing on Piney Run near Marriott'sville, Maryland. I'd been trying out a new fly rod upstream and confronted Phil as he was packing up gear by his car. We started talking about a few odds and ends when he mentioned that skeletal remains of a large human had been found on the Piney Run South Bank not far from where we were standing. He said that another fisherman had chanced upon the bones while he wandered off the trail. After the discovery, the man simply mentioned to a few other fishermen that there were bones in that direction as he gestured to the area. Phil said that he and a companion walked over to the other side of the stream to take a look at the remains. He said that some of the bones were obviously missing, but there was a skull without a jawbone, as well as the vertebrae, a few ribs and long bones of the arms and legs. There was no visible tissue, but there were a few small desiccated patches of reddish-brown fur scattered around. Phil said that both he and his companion both muttered at the same time, Where are the clothes? Then Phil said, This is too big to be a human. This was back in the early 1980s, so there were no cell phones. 
Phil's companion walked to the small store by the Patapsco River Bridge to call the police. As they waited for the authorities, Phil took out his fish tape and measured the upper arm bone. He remembered it to measure 22 inches. Phil's observations and conclusions were that this was something similar to a large ape or gorilla. He also mentioned that the skull looked very much human, but larger. After the Baltimore County Police and State Police arrived on the scene, everyone was advised to leave the area. In fact, Phil said they placed crime scene tape across the road so no one could get within 300 yards of the location. He said he and a few others hung around the general store by the railroad tracks so they could see who was coming and going from the scene. There were unmarked helicopters bringing people on site, as well as several unmarked vehicles. These vehicles were similar to what I had seen after my encounter. There was never any mention on the local news. As a result of the information I gathered from witnesses and residents, I assume there may have been a breeding population of Bigfoot in the Patapsco State Park. The most recent sighting was in 1993 by an eight-year-old boy in the Woodstock, Maryland area, a few miles downriver from Marriott'sville. There was a report filed for a sighting in 2001 at the Liberty Reservoir. Witnesses thought they saw Bigfoot on a frozen lake. Since the area is now heavily zoned for residential dwellings, it's obvious to me that these creature breeding units have moved on to more natural locations. She's been dead three hours now. Sitting with my laptop huddled in the corner of my flat, I still can't believe I'm writing this. It doesn't seem real. None of it seems real. A week ago, we were on holiday together, and now, now I have to get this down. That's the main thing. I need to get it down or no one will believe me. Shit, I'm not even sure I believe me. Although I can still see it when I shut my eyes. A part of my brain is already working to convince the rest of me it was just a dream. Just some awful, half-delirious nightmare brought on by the stress of my girlfriend's illness. It isn't, though. I know it isn't. And if I don't make a record of this now, I think something in my head is going to snap. Poppy started finding the hairs the day after we got back. We'd been on holiday to Myanmar, our first big trip together. Poppy and I have been going out three years, and we finally moved in together last summer. We'd been planning that trip ever since. Looking back now, it feels like the holiday happened to someone else. To some other couple. We visited the temples of Bagan, saw the sights in Yangon, sunbathed beside Enil Lake, even went skinny dipping after a few cocktails, when the rest of the hotel was dark and quiet in the early hours. Trekking, too. That was my favorite thing. We went on a handful of group hikes through the villages in the countryside, following a guide through fields of chili and ginger. We slept under the stars. I guess holidays like that can sometimes cause problems in a relationship. After two solid, occasionally exhausting weeks together, I imagine cracks start to show with some couples. But it wasn't like that for me and Poppy. The whole trip brought us closer together. It was the happiest I've been in years. But the day after we got back, things changed. That was when Poppy began finding the hairs. They were in her mouth when she woke up. I remember the first morning she told me. It was the day we were both due back at work, and I found her standing in our bathroom by the sink, frozen in front of the mirror. She was still in her pajamas, and she didn't glance up when I came in. Aren't you getting dressed? I asked. 
We're going to miss the train if we don't leave in ten, sweetheart. Poppy blinked. Her eyes found mine in the mirror. She had a slight frown on her face, and I thought at first she hadn't heard me. Then she held out her left hand with the palm facing up. So weird, she muttered. Three white hairs lay across it. They were short, maybe an inch long, slightly crinkled. My parents have a white Jack Russell cross, and they reminded me a bit of the hairs she sometimes left on my coat when I went to visit. What's that, are you malting? I meant it as a joke, but Poppy didn't laugh. Her eyes flicked from mine to the hairs in her hand, then back to mine again. She pulled a face. This is going to sound super gross, but, well, I don't even get how it happened. Huh? I found them in my mouth. I could feel something tickling me when I woke up. So fucking gross. It was like that feeling when you get a hair in a mouthful of food. She grimaced. Where do you think they came from? I frowned down at the hairs in her hand, then shrugged, glanced at my watch. I don't know, probably off that light gray jumper of yours or something. Who knows? We'd better make a move anyway. Poppy leaned forward and turned on the tap, held her left hand under it, and watched the hairs wash off her skin and run down the plug hole. Her next words were half-mumbled, and I almost missed them beneath the sound of the water. That jumper is shoved in a cupboard somewhere. I haven't worn it in a year. As I write this now, a big part of me hates myself. I hate myself for not taking it more seriously. The whole thing happened fast once it started, it's true, and I don't even know if I'd been able to stop it anyway. But I could have tried. I could have rushed her to the doctor early on, if not after that first morning, then at least after she began showing other symptoms. The next day it was stomach aches. Poppy didn't mention hairs to me again, not that morning at least. But when I went to wake her for work, she told me she wasn't going in. She had sharp pains in her belly, she said. Had been getting them all night. Barely slept. I kissed her forehead and told her to get plenty of rest. Said it was probably the chicken she'd eaten last night or one of those 24-hour bugs. Told her to get some sleep and it would get better. It didn't get better. When I returned home from work nine hours later, eyes stinging and tired, Poppy was still in bed. She moaned a half-greeting when I came into the room, but didn't open her eyes. I woke the next day to see Poppy sat up in bed beside me. Her dark hair was stuck to her forehead in sweaty clumps. Her eyes were half-lidded with sleep. I don't fucking get this. Her voice sounded weak and gravelly. She stared down at her hands, which were cupped in front of her. Her forehead creased in a frown. More of those fucking hairs. The same white ones again. She turned to me as I sat up in bed, and for the first time I saw something more than confusion on her face, something approaching fear. I started to mumble some sleepy response, but she cut me off. I had them yesterday, too, Chris. I remember half waking when your alarm went off and feeling them there. Three small hairs on my tongue, and one between my back teeth. She shuddered. It doesn't fucking make sense. Before I had a chance to say anything, she groaned and screwed her eyes shut leaned forward with her arms clutched around her belly. I put my hand on her arm and waited for the pain to pass. After a few seconds had gone by, she straightened again and turned to look at me. No better? The question seemed stupid, obvious, but it was all I could think to say. Poppy frowned. I felt like I slept a bit better last night, but when I woke up this morning, the pain was back. It comes in waves, but it's still there. Before I left for work, we agreed that she'd book a doctor's appointment.
Later, sat at my desk as the afternoon stretched on and the minutes dragged, I did some Googling. Symptoms. The NHS website. WebMD. None of it helped. There were too many possibilities, ranging from mild stomach bugs to things I didn't even want to consider. And when I added the white hairs, nothing came up at all. The thing at the back of my mind, the thing I didn't want to pay too much attention to, even though I knew I couldn't ignore it, was our holiday, our trip to Myanmar. Because you heard stories, didn't you? Travelers who come back with weird tropical illnesses, people who ignored a tiny bite or a sting only for it to turn into something worse. I'd even had a similar conversation with the guide on one of our treks. Ken, his name had been... We'd got talking one night over a cigarette, which we passed back and forth outside the home of the villagers who were putting up our group for the night. The conversation had started with his job, then moved on to tourism in the area, to some of the stupid things he'd seen people do. Some people, they do not have any sense of respect, Ken said. I can still remember the way the tip of his cigarette glowed in the night, the trail of smoke drifting up from his silhouette. They do not understand that they are guests in someone else's home, or that the area they're in can be dangerous. They want to pet stray dogs. They want to take photos of snakes. He turned to me and grinned, teeth shining in the dark. I actually had one woman who did that. We saw a viper in the path, very dangerous. She wanted me to take a picture of her with the snake in it. I laughed quietly. You're serious? Ken nodded. We always get these people. All the time, my friends are seeing this. They take stupid risks, go up to wild animals, swim in lakes they shouldn't swim in, walk in places they shouldn't walk. My mind suddenly flashed back to mine and Poppy's skinny-dipping session at the hotel in Inle, and a pang of guilt went through me. I didn't say anything. All the time, and they don't know the dangers, Ken continued. Hidden dangers. You can get bitten by something, maybe a wild dog, rabies, Poisonous snakes, spiders that lay eggs in a cut, parasites in the water. My country, it needs the tourism, but it is, how do you say in England, like a sword with two edges, good and bad. He paused and took another drag on the cigarette before handing it back to me. Some people, they don't respect the land. They don't respect that there are old places here, old things that have been here long before them that should not be disturbed. Poppy was worse when I got home that day. Quite a lot worse. Barely spoke. Wouldn't eat the soup I made her. She had this smell on her breath when I bent to kiss her that was sort of spoiled, like meat that's been left out on the side for too long. The only thing I got out of her was that she'd booked a doctor's appointment for the following afternoon, and I have to admit that made me feel a bit better at the time. When I eventually joined her in bed a few hours later, she was fast asleep. Something woke me in the night. A noise, sort of a half-heard rustling that blended with the dream I was having. I struggled up from sleep like a swimmer dragging themselves to the surface of the water. The room was dark, and at first I couldn't get my bearings. I could still hear the scrabbling noise I'd heard in my dream, and it took my mind a moment to realize I was awake. Scritch scratch, scritch scratch. A soft rustling. It sounded close. One of the old houses I lived in as a student once had a rat infestation, and that was the first place my mind went. Little scurrying feet in the walls, maybe, or under the floor. That was wrong, though, and I knew it was wrong. The noise was soft, but it wasn't behind the walls. 
it was closer than that. I turned onto my back, the bed creaking beneath my body. The noise stopped. I stared into the darkness, ears pricked, but I couldn't hear anything. The room was silent. Then I saw a hint of movement from the corner of my eye. I tilted my face in Poppy's direction and felt my breath catch in my throat. Her head was the wrong shape. Staring at her silhouette, that was the first thought to shoot across my mind. She looked wrong. I could only make out her outline in the room's thick darkness, but the shape of her head was lumpy, like an extra jut of bone was sprouting from the place her mouth should be. I closed my eyes hard, trying to force the sleep out of them, and two things happened at once. Poppy's dark shape shifted in the bed, and a whining noise, a soft, high-pitched keening, issued from her side of the bed. Then it broke off into a coffin fit as she rolled onto her side. Poppy spluttered, pulling in little hitching half-breaths, and coughed some more. I held my breath. I suddenly had the horrible idea that she might be choking in her sleep. Her throat clogged with a mixture of phlegm and those tiny white hairs she kept pulling from her mouth. But after a few more seconds, the coughing petered out. I lay frozen in the bed, fully awake now, listening, straining my ears for those soft, rustling sounds. But the only noise I could hear was Poppy's breathing. That was last night. It feels like it happened years ago, but there it is, less than 24 hours, less than one full day for my life to be ripped apart. I need to write this next bit fast now. I have to get it down. If I think too much about it or hesitate, I know I'll lose my nerve. I left for work as usual this morning. Just that sentence alone makes me feel sick with guilt, but it's true. I didn't ring the hospital or drive Poppy to A&E like I now know I should have done. I just got dressed and walked out the door like it was another day. I could tell you it was Poppy's doctor's appointment, which I knew was coming up, or the fact she was fast asleep when I kissed her goodbye, but neither of those things make me feel better. I think a big part of me knew something was wrong even then, seriously wrong, but the rest of me didn't want to admit it. The feeling didn't go away, though. As the hours ticked by at work and I didn't hear anything from Poppy, it grew. I told myself she'd be sleeping, and then I told myself she'd be busy at her appointment, but it didn't help. By the time five o'clock hit and I finally left the office, I was practically running. I knew something was wrong as soon as I got to our front door. Before then, actually. I could hear Poppy's ragged coughs echoing down the hall as I reached the corridor outside our flat. They were worse than they'd been the night before, those coughs. Much worse. I didn't know if it was the acoustics of the hall distorting them, but to me, they barely sounded human. I fumbled my key into the lock and burst through the front door, staggered along the hall to the source of the sound, the bathroom. Poppy was on her knees in front of the toilet, hands clutching the porcelain. Her hair hung around her face in sweaty black curtains and she coughed over and over again. Her whole body shook with the force of them. Sweetheart, I... She turned to me half turned towards the sound of my voice and as soon as I got a glimpse of her face my words died on my tongue Poppy's skin was dark red the tendons on her neck stood out like ropes strands of her hair stuck to her forehead framing and half obscuring her bloodshot eyes I could see the fear in those eyes something fast approaching terror 
Poppy opened her mouth, and I stared on in horror as a runnel of blood spilled from the corner of it. A low moan issued from deep in her throat, a sound filled with pain and panic. I had my hand in my pocket, struggling to free my smartphone when she collapsed. Her hands slipped from the toilet and she crashed sideways onto the tiles. Poppy's whole body jerked and shook. Her face was turned towards me, mouth open. A strangled gurgling issued from it. I was unlocking my phone, fingers slipping across the screen, when I saw something in the dark cave of her throat. There was a white shape in there. It stood out in the blackness of her mouth, some blockage. My first thought was that it looked like a dull knob of bone, maybe food lodged against her windpipe. Then it moved. It wasn't Poppy's shaking that caused it to shift. The thing in her throat moved on its own. I could see it writhing and twisting in there. The phone slipped from my hands. I dropped down onto my knees beside Poppy, already cupping her face in one hand. By this point, her skin had changed to an angry shade of purple, and I could no longer hear her breathing. I guess I had the idea that I was going to reach down her throat and pull whatever it was out of there, clear her airways. But as I twisted her face towards mine so I could look into her mouth, I saw that I wouldn't need to, because the thing was coming out on its own. I will never, ever get the image of what I saw in Poppy's mouth out of my mind. Not ever. I can see it now, clearly, when I shut my eyes. A nightmare reel of images that are going to play and play and play, like a horror film stuck on loop. Back before we discovered we had a rat infestation at university, we used to keep our bin bags outside, in a pile by the back door. None of us were very good at remembering the day the rubbish was meant to go out, and sometimes those bags were left to stack up for weeks. I remember one day going outside with a fresh bag to dump that I heard a rustling in the black pile, a soft, scrabbling sound. I thought it was just the wind at first, but when I went to drop the bag in my hands, I saw a hole that had been ripped in one of the older sacks, a jagged mouth in the bin liner. As I stared at that hole, I have a clear memory of seeing the plump head of a rat nosing its way out. That was the memory that flew through my mind as I stared into Poppy's mouth. That fat brown rat worming its way out of the bag. Only what I saw in the bathroom, what I saw dragging its way from the wet darkness of Poppy's throat, was far, far worse. It was about the same size as a rat, but that's where the similarities ended. Its fur was white, for one thing, a dirty off-white, with streaks of blood and half-digested food clinging to the bristles. As it propelled itself forward, wriggling its body over Poppy's tongue, I saw that it didn't have feet. The thing had legs, but they were long and thin, closer to the legs of a spider than a rodent. Lots of legs. They writhed and scrabbled for purchase in Poppy's mouth. All of that was terrible, but it wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing was the creature's face. It was sort of crumpled in, a brown pulp of flesh that looked like a tumor in a sea of white hair, a tumor with three unblinking yellow eyes. I fell backwards, away from Poppy. Something in my mind felt like it was slipping, and all rational thought of clearing Poppy's airwaves or calling an ambulance had temporarily left me. All I could do was sit on the cold tiles, staring. The creature whined. It was a high-pitched, mewling sound that made the skin of my neck itch. The thing's nest of black legs scrabbled for purchase on Poppy's lower lip, 
finally dragging its rodent-like body free of her mouth. I used my hands to scrabble backwards as the thing fell to the tiles. Have you ever seen a cockroach move? They don't look like they should be fast, but they are. The white creature crouched in front of Poppy's unmoving form moved like that. One moment it was still, the next it was scuttling towards me. But the fear at seeing it come at me hardly even had a chance to register before it had scampered straight by, legs clicking against the tiles as it fled the bathroom. I caught a glimpse of it scurrying across our bedroom, scaling the curtains in a white-black blur, and then it was gone, through the half-open window and into the night. I don't remember calling the ambulance. I must have done it, though, because at some point I remember a paramedic taking my arm. I was sat with Poppy at the time, talking to her while I stroked her hair. I didn't hear him come in. I think I already knew she was dead by then. She hadn't moved in a long time, and her skin felt cold. I don't remember much of what happened next, but I remember one of the paramedics leading me into our lounge and sitting me on the sofa, talking to me. I guess I talked back, but I can't remember what I said. The only thing I do remember was insisting that I wasn't going to come with them when they left. I said I'd follow on after, even though I didn't even know where they were going. I might have screamed it at them. For a long time after they'd gone, before I started writing all this, I just sat staring into space, thinking. Thinking about what I should have done and didn't do. Thinking about that thing growing in Poppy's stomach. Thinking about the conversation I had with Ken what seems like a lifetime ago when he told me about the old things of this world. Things that shouldn't be disturbed. I need to go soon. I need to make calls and tell people about Poppy, follow the paramedics. I'm not sure I can, though. That's the thing. I'm not sure I can leave this flat. A big part of me wants to walk out the door and never come back here again. But another part, quite a large part, actually, keeps thinking about the darkness outside the window. That same darkness the white thing disappeared into. The white, scuttling creature that even now must be out there somewhere. Maybe lurking in the sewers or squeezed into some dark crack in a wall. Waiting. And that story was from the No Sleep subreddit. It was written by Sam Hasem, and it's entitled, My Girlfriend Started Finding Little White Hairs in Her Mouth. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. This show is also on Twitter at curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.